0: All right. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys here this morning. Uh, this morning, we are continuing in our series, A View of the Bible from 30,000 Feet. And we're in sermon number four out of this six-part series. And I've entitled this message, Redemption. And, and we're going to be looking at, at Jesus this morning. Um, you know, typically, I have a text that I'm going to direct you to turn to. But... Uh, and typically I'm preaching out of that one text throughout the entire message, but today we're going to jump around quite a bit. Uh, so I don't necessarily have a text to direct you to this morning, and for that reason I will put them up on the screen. Uh, so a bit of rarity there for me, uh, but but that's kind of how we're going to do it today and, and this morning. So your text will be up on the screen as we work through Um, except for the text from Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. I added that in this morning. I didn't get that to Chris in time for him to put that in. So uh, that'll be the only text that's not there. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to dive in to this message today. God, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to worship with one another, both here and at home, Lord. And God, as we walk through this message as we look at the climax of the biblical story how it centers on jesus god and the redemption that he provides lord god draw people to yourself who don't know you and for those of us who have professed jesus as lord and savior and may this spur us on a greater sense of gratitude a greater sense of of worship and praise and and trust and hope in you god as we walk through this message here today in this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my dad has been remodeling homes for years. And, and over, the, over the years, he has bought, he has, he has sold, he has fixed up, he has kept for rent a number of homes. Um, and most of the homes that he has restored have, have really not been in the best shape when they first began. And, and for a time when he, would, when he would finish remodeling a home, he would say, You know, son, that, that home, I mean, it, it was a lot of work. And I will never purchase a home in as bad a shape as that to fix up again. And, you know, a couple months would go by, four, four, four months, half a year or so. And he'd say, yeah, I, th- I think I'm ready to, to start a new remodeling project. And, and so he'd go out and he'd find him a home. And, and then he would purchase that home. And, and he'd say, son, I, come, come in town. I want to show, show you this new home that I got that I'm going to be remodeling. And, and so we'd pull up and, and he'd say, this is it. And, and I remember on several occasions, I'd turn to my dad, and say, Dad, I thought you said you were not going to purchase a home in, worse, in as bad a shape as, as the last home. And here you have, you've purchased a home that is in worse shape than the last home. And he'd say, I know, I know, but I got such a great deal on this one. And so I, I'm just going to go, I'm going to proceed with that. And while those homes started in bad condition after he finished, I mean, they, they looked completely completely different, almost unrecognizable, except for that they were on the same lot and maybe the outside of it looked very similar to when he began. But when you walked inside, I mean, things just look completely different, completely transformed, completely restored. You see, my dad is a master carpenter who can remodel and and restore almost anything. But for all the skills that he has developed over the years, there's at least one carpenter who is greater than he. There's one carpenter who not only built and probably remodeled homes in his day, but he also and more importantly is working to restore this entire world. And in order to get to this carpenter and to to understand that the restoration project that he has undertaken, we have taken this long journey from the east of Eden. A journey that has led to the climax of the restoration project, a climax that that centers on the biblical story of the life and the death and and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the center of the biblical story because he is the promised seed from Genesis 3.15, and he is the promised seed from the line of Abraham. He is the king who is going to sit on the eternal throne of David forever and ever and ever. He is the one who deals a death blow to Satan and ultimately restores our relationship with the Father and. eventually. Eventually, he restores this entire world. Jesus is the ultimate carpenter, and this is the ultimate restoration project. Now, how does Jesus restore everything? How does Jesus restore our relationship with the Father? How does he eventually restore this entire world? How does this lowly and humble carpenter deal a death blow to Satan? Well, to answer those questions, we'll begin with Jesus's life. And we learn that by Jesus's perfect life, he fulfills the vocation of kingly priest. If you remember, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be greater than the stars of heaven and that he would make him a blessing to the entire nation and to the entire world. And that last phrase in Genesis 12, 3, it reads, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, now reading that verse, it is not immediately apparent how that's going to happen. We've we've talked about this as we walk through this series. We don't know exactly how that is going to happen, exactly how Abraham is going to become a blessing to the entire world. But as you walk through biblical history, you recognize that, that restoration is not going to occur through the nation of Israel, the nation that ultimately comes through Abraham. Both the nation and the kings who, who came to rule that nation uh, did not, could not put an end to the curse. They could not restore the world back to the Garden of Eden, nor could they act as a light to the nations as, as God declared that they must. They failed at every point, eventually being exiled from the promised land because they were so wicked. And while that is terrible, most, none of it is surprising. You see the Israelites they they lived underneath the curse. Listen to what Paul says about the curse in Romans 5:12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see the curse brings sin and with it death, not only Spiritual death, but physical death. Spiritual and physical death that that we cannot escape because we are born of Adam. But Jesus is able to bring about restoration because Jesus is sinless and he does not deserve death. The reason he was able to escape the curse because he was born without an earthly father. In the gospel accounts, we learn that Jesus was actually born of a virgin. In a miraculous act, Mary conceived through the work of the the Holy Spirit in her life, and Jesus then, he he does not come through the line of Adam in the sense that Adam is his federal head. Adam is is not Jesus' representative, which allows him to be perfect. Now Luke picks up on this, and he says in Luke 1.35, And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And that's important right there. That word holy is important, saying that, that He is holy. He is holy just as God is holy, and He is holy because He is God. And when we're born, God doesn't call us holy, but He calls Jesus holy. You see, since the Spirit brought about conception, Jesus was holy. He was without blemish. This does not mean to imply that that sin comes through the line of the father. Rather, it means that sin comes down to us through the unbroken line of Adam, because Adam is our federal head. He is our representative. But in this one case, in this one instance, the representation of Adam was broken because God intervened in this world. Jesus was born sinless. And Jesus continued that way throughout his entire life. That doesn't mean that Jesus was not tempted. Jesus was indeed tempted. After Jesus' baptism, before Jesus began his ministry, you remember the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness so that he might be tempted. And starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4, we read Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And as you work through Matthew chapter four, you see that Jesus was indeed tempted by Satan. He was tempted by Satan three times. First with the bread to to take care of his hunger. Second with a with a fall from the top of the temple that would have resulted in him testing the Father. And, And finally with the promise of power if he would just bow down to Satan. But Jesus didn't give in to any of those at all and said he remained faithful to God, not sinning against him. And it's Jesus's faithfulness that allows him to be the perfect carpenter, the true Adam and the true Israel. He did what they couldn't do in life. He acted as the perfect little king and priest. He recognized the father's rightful place to reign and to rule. He was fruitful and multiplied, not by giving you know physical descendants, but spiritual descendants. He sought to cultivate and push back the darkness in this world through his preaching and teaching and physical ministry. And Jesus' spiritual disciples reproduce themselves by making disciples of every people and every nation. He fulfills the mandate given to the first Adam to be fruitful and to multiply, seeking to subdue the earth as God's representatives bring God glory. In all of these ways, Jesus acts as the perfect priestly king. And the result is that Jesus acts as a light to the nations and as Israel, was, as Israel was supposed to do, but Israel failed to do. And so Jesus, through his life, proves himself to be the true Adam and the true Israel. He fulfills the conditions of the Abrahamic and the, and the Davidic covenant. He is completely and utterly obedient to God and to the Father. He never sins against God. He is the perfect carpenter. He is the priestly king. He is the, his life perfectly fulfills the biblical covenants. It is his perfect obedience that allows Jesus to usher in the new covenant. And In an upside-down way, Jesus' sinful life leads to his death. And as we turn to Jesus' death, we learn that by Jesus' substitutionary death, he satisfies the justice of the king. And satisfying the Father's justice is is another crucial element to the story of redemption. While Israel was God's chosen people, they they were unholy sinners who who continued to sin against God over and over and over again. And because they were unholy sinners, Israel had to offer yearly and and daily sacrifices in order for God to continue to live in their presence. They lived in, in rebellion to Him. The price for their rebellion was death. And in order for them to continue to live in God's kingdom, something had to die in their place. And so the sacrificial system was born. But there was just one problem with the sacrificial system. And so what is that problem? Well, we learn about the problem over in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away Sin. And so we see here that the problem with the sacrificial system was the sacrifices could temporarily cover sin, but couldn't remove sin, and it certainly could not restore this broken world. You could think of the sacrificial system like a good coat of paint that, that you paint over something that is rusty, or some sort of, you know, so, something that is behind that, and, and, and that rust, it kind of leaks back through after a time. And then maybe you put some, some pain over it again, and that happens again. You see, unless you deal with, with what is beneath the surface there, it's going to keep coming back up. And that's the same way with sin. Unless you deal with sin in the heart, it's going to keep coming back up. And that's what the sacrificial system would do. It would just, it would just cover that sin. And it would allow those people to, to be holy so that they might live in the presence of God for another day without being destroyed by God. But eventually that sin would come out in their heart as they would rebel against God over and over again. And so this is why the priests had to stand there daily offering sacrifices that could not ultimately remove the sinful heart of man. Man continued in rebellion against God over and over and over again. While the sacrificial system worked, it wasn't perfect. But that's a system that they, le- that they lived under for centuries. But there's hope for restoration and ultimate justice. So if you continue in, in Hebrews chapter 10, picking back up in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, not multiple, a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the Father, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You see, Jesus, Jesus is our hope. Jesus does what the sacrificial system couldn't do. He offers a once and for all sacrifice that satisfies the justice of the king and it ushers in the new covenant. God is not just if he allows us to live in his kingdom without this payment for sin. But Jesus comes. Jesus lives his perfect life. Jesus does not deserve death at all. He doesn't deserve to be kicked out of the kingdom. Jesus does everything right. And as a result, he is able to give his life for our life because he is the perfect sacrifice. He is able to act as our substitutionary atonement. In other words, he is able to stand in our place. He is able to substitute himself for us. And Jesus is not just able to do that. Jesus actually does that. He dies in our place so that he might restore us back to the king and so that he might provide us with entrance into God's kingdom. It is Jesus' death that ushers in the new covenant. A covenant unlike the old. A covenant that doesn't require daily and yearly sacrifices. A covenant that is not built around some external legal system. Instead, it is a covenant built around Jesus' once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus is able to usher in the new covenant because he fulfills the covenants that come before you see, Jesus is the true Adam. He's the true Noah. He's the true Abraham. He's the true Israel. He is the true Davidic king. All of the covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus' life and Jesus' death. In Jesus, we experience a restored relationship with the Father because our sins have been finally and fully forgiven. And how great is that? I mean, how great is it to know that, that, that Jesus has dealt a death blow to our sin so that we can no long, so that it no longer affects our relationship with God. Jesus is the ultimate carpenter who restores our relationship with the Father through his substitutionary death, which means it's not about our work. Instead, it is about Jesus' work on our behalf. And certainly faith without works is, is dead, and we know that from the book of James, right? James tells us that if you, have, if you say you have faith, but, but you have no works at all, man, your faith is dead. Your faith should spring you into action. You should, what you believe should cause you to live out a certain way of life. And so certainly faith without works is is dead, but but we cannot and we must not believe that somehow our works provide us with an extra favor with the Lord or it keeps us in favor with God. It is Jesus' death alone on our behalf that provides us with a restored relationship with the Father. He covers our past sins, it covers our present sins, and Jesus' death covers our future sins. It is Jesus' death his substitutionary death on our behalf that provides us with salvation. Amen. And that's what we profess as believers, that it is Jesus alone who does what we cannot do. He pays the penalty. But Jesus, because Jesus died in our place, then we can be adopted into God's family. We can call God Father, and He calls us sons and daughters. That's right. and because of Jesus. Jesus. We have that intimate relationship with the Father. A relationship that you can't get in any other religion. No other religion allows you to be actually adopted into God's family. You might appease a God with the sacrifice here and there. But to actually become His children, that is the uniqueness of Christianity. That is the uniqueness of what only Jesus can provide. That is the gospel. That is the good news Amen. now so far we've talked about jesus's life we've talked about jesus's death now we need to talk about jesus's resurrection and lastly here we learn that by jesus's resurrection life he promises new hearts that gladly submit to god's rule allowing us to accomplish our original created purpose It'd be hard to claim that, that we have eternal life to look forward to if Jesus, who is, who is our perfect sacrifice, just remained in the grave. Right? We say, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus. You know, he, he came, He lived this perfect life, He died, and, and that was it. But that wasn't it. Jesus did not just come and live a perfect life and then die. Jesus resurrected from the grave. Jesus defeated death. We're told in Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, and he's speaking of Mary and the other women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were there, they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, for and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and, and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. You see, Jesus' resurrection, it wasn't just something that happened unexpected. Jesus rose just as he said that he would rise. All throughout his ministry, Jesus predicts his his resurrection. Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. And he says here in this text, the angel, he has risen just as he said he was going to do. It wasn't a mystery. It wasn't unexpected. They should have known that Jesus was going to resurrect as they walked and they talked with Jesus each and every single day. Jesus defeated death, which then gives us hope that all of those who follow Jesus will defeat death as well. Death is not the end for the believer. And it's crucial that we believe this about Jesus if we're going to call ourselves Christians. You see, if Jesus was not raised from the dead then God's restoration project would be incomplete. We would not have any hope. And Paul makes his point over in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, we have no hope of eternal life. All we have to look forward to is death. But because Jesus has raised, a point that Paul makes explicit here in 1 Corinthians 15, we have hope. We have a future to look forward to. Now, if you've been reading through the Bible with us, we're, we're, we're reading through the Bible, using the Bible Project Scripture Reading app to read through the Bible, you would have just finished reading through the book of Ezekiel. And near the end of the book of Ezekiel, and in, in Ezekiel 36 and 37, there is this remarkable promise given and this wild, wild scene that is pictured there. God knew that, that even though uh, those whom he had called his, his people could not and, and would not faithfully follow him. And so God says that, that in Ezekiel 36, 29, he will deliver them from all their uncleanliness. And the people would once again then come and, and inhabit the land. And you remember, they had, they had been kicked out of the promised land because they were so sinful, they were so wicked. And God removed them from that land. But here he's promising that they would come back. And he also promises that they are going to live according to God's will and that they are going to be sorry for the sins that they have committed against God. In verse 31 of Ezekiel 36, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. There will be true contrition and true repentance on the part of the Israelites. Something that, that hasn't really happened in the past. And then God tells us in verse 32 why he is doing this. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. You see, God is going to do this for his glory. Not for our glory, but for his glory. They have done nothing but but sin against him. And just as we have done nothing but sin against him as well. But God will bring them back. God will restore them for his glory. But how does that happen? How does a rebellious people who consistently sin against God day in and day out all of a sudden become a people who who follow God's will? Who are sorry for all of the things that they have done against God? Who who have true repentance and true contrition for all of the many ways in which they have sinned against the Lord? How does that happen? Well, it's no less than a supernatural act. In the very next chapter, chapter 37, and and really if you look in your Bibles, you would see there, there's probably a header. It's not in the original text, but there's probably a header there that that describes that section as the valley of dry bones. And here is Ezekiel. He's given this this wild vision. He's taken by God, by the Spirit to this this valley. And and he looks out over this valley and, and he sees nothing but dried up, Bones, Men that were once corpses who have rotted and decomposed so that all that is left now is just a valley full of dry bones. And these people represent the sinful house of Israel. And God asks Ezekiel a question there in verse 3 of of Ezekiel 37. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Only you know, God. And God tells them in verse 4 to prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And continue in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel prophesies in this wild scene begins to take place in front of his in front of his eyes these bones become living beings and God promises through this vision that that he will raise dead men to life he will ultimately place them in his promised land the promised land that that Israel has been kicked out of the promised land that Jesus has come to restore us to eventually we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks as we look at the end of days. And in one sense, Israel's vision is, is a picture of our future resurrection, our future restoration. Though we die, we will be raised again. We will then enter into God's promised land. It is a picture of what God is, is capable of doing. It is a picture that, that should give us hope. And not only is it a picture of the future resurrection, but it is also a picture of our resurrected life now. Jesus' resurrection works new life in us now before Jesus before Jesus works in our life we are like those dead bones who are out there in this valley before the spirit comes and and breathes upon us we are like those dead bones that are there in that valley but we have not remained like those dead bones in that valley we have been resurrected to new life and God has done this for his glory and ultimately for our joy as well just as Jesus experiences this new life in the resurrection we experience experience a new life now, and we have a new life to look forward to when Jesus ultimately returns. And all of this occurs because Jesus has resurrected from the grave. And baptism is a picture of this new life. You see, as Baptists, we, we don't believe that, that baptism saves us, right? Instead, we believe that baptism is a, is a, is a picture, a representation of what takes place In the gospel, when I'm when I baptize folks, when I'm when I'm dunking them into the water and I'm and I'm bringing them out, I almost always say this buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. And I say that because that is what takes place in salvation. In Jesus, the new covenant promise that our that our hearts will be changed. That actually happens. Our will, our wants, our desires, these things die in the grave. And when we resurrect from the grave, we are connected to the resurrected Savior so that God's will, God's wants, God's desires for our life are ours. Instead of wanting to be the the big K king who is ruling our life and saying how things are going to go, we rightfully take our place as the little K kings who serve God as his representatives in the world for his glory. And it is when this happens that we are actually able to accomplish the purpose that God has given us in our life to act as kingly priests to image God to the world who serve according to his word and exercise dominion in accordance with God's wisdom. In order for that to happen in our life, a supernatural work must occur. We don't just wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to step down from the throne of my life from being the big K king and I'm going to rightfully take my place as a little K king. We don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to live a new life in Christ. We don't just wake up one day and say, and have this spirit of repentance in our life and contrition for all of the ways in which we have sinned against God. No, a supernatural work must take place in our life for these things to occur, just like a supernatural work had to take place there in the Valley of Dry Bones, just like a supernatural work had to take place as Jesus is resurrected from the grave and Lazarus was resurrected from the grave And, and all of those others throughout biblical history who has been resurrected, a supernatural work had to take place for you to experience new life. And the supernatural work can't take place apart from Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the climax of the biblical story. He not only lives his perfect life, but he offers a perfect once and for all sacrifice and hope that life continues beyond the grave and a perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus is the perfect carpenter who completes the ultimate restoration project. In Jesus, the Father fixes what Adam broke. In Jesus, the Father provides a perfect and final sacrifice. In Jesus, the Father promises hope and new life. In Jesus, the new covenant is ushered in. Jesus is the perfect carpenter who completes the ultimate restoration project. Without him, we are left in this dilapidated state and our only future is death and God's judgment being poured out on us. Thankfully, Jesus has come. Thankfully, he will return to gather his people and finally complete his restoration project. A restoration project that is open to all who would repent and believe, who would, who would repent of their sins and believe that Jesus is their Lord and is their Savior. And so this morning I have to ask you do, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is your only hope? Or do you think that, that He is just one of many ways in order to get to heaven? Do you believe he has paid the penalty for your sins on your behalf, or do you think that you've got to pay the penalty for your sins by working your way to the Father? Do you believe and have you repented of your sins and turned to live as God would have you to live? Or do you continue to do things your own way and to seek things your own way, to continue to live as as the big K king over your life? you haven't repented of your sins if you haven't believed don't don't wait any longer jesus can provide you with with the hope for which you long we all long for a hope we all want hope we all desire hope especially in in the in the times in which we are living right now right the life has just been completely turned upside down and we are searching we are wanting we are seeking for hope well jesus can provide you with hope He can provide you with salvation. He can provide you with what you long for. And so turn to Jesus today. Don't don't wait any longer to turn to him. And if you have turned to Jesus, know that Jesus has restored you. He's paid the penalty for your sins. There is no more penalty for you to pay. You can rest in Jesus. Your obedience, though, it should be the product of your salvation. It doesn't earn you salvation. It doesn't continue to buy you favor with the Father at all. It is the product of a changed heart, of a renewed heart, of the new covenant being ushered into and changing this heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Jesus has earned it all for you. When we think about what Jesus has done for us, and we should want to obey Jesus. We should want to obey Jesus out of gratitude for all of the things that, that He has done for us. We should be captivated by Jesus and His sacrifice on our behalf. We should be drawn to Jesus and Jesus alone. We should want to gather with other believers We should want to serve and encourage other believers in Christ. We should want to build them up in the faith. We should want to reach out to those in the world who are lost, who are hurting, who do not have any hope. We should be spurred on to do all of those things as we think about what Jesus has done for us, as we think about how his life and his death and his resurrection has provided us with salvation. We should want to do these things because we have been restored by Jesus. We're going to talk further next week about all of the things that we should do as a church, as a people who've been restored by Jesus. But for now, let's remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's remember who Jesus is and let's let that drive us to worship Jesus, to obey Jesus, and to praise Jesus. Jesus truly is the perfect carpenter who has completed the ultimate restoration project. And I pray, I pray today that that you believe that. I pray today that that causes you to worship and follow him in a greater way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you today thankful for all the many ways in which you have provided for us. And God, we ask today that we will be spurred on to greater worship, greater obedience to you because of what Jesus has done. As we think about Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection, Lord, may we be captivated by him. And Lord, for those who are searching and seeking for hope, God, we pray, Lord, that today's message would, would land on their hearts, that it would, it would change them so that they would see that, that Jesus truly is their only hope. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.